Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. Hey guys, how are you doing today? Doing great, Bruce. How are you? Good. Well, mostly I'm I am actually doing well. You probably know I have a kidney stone, so I'm not necessarily doing great. <laughs> how about but, you, uh, Tracy? <laughs> <laughs> how are you, Tracy? I'm well. Good. Today we're going to do AlphaGo the movie, which is a movie that is free on YouTube. Just go Google AlphaGo the movie. And um don't listen to this episode until you've gone and you've watched that movie. Um, this this episode's going to contain spoilers. Now you may think, no, wait, isn't AlphaGo the movie a documentary? How can a documentary have something that can be spoiled? I'm telling you, go watch the movie and you don't want to listen to this episode first because it's going to contain spoilers. <laughs> um, I thought the movie was just excellent. It, it was tense. It was exciting. I had been asked to watch it for one of my classes. I think it was my deep learning class. They required it as part of the curriculum, you know, required in the sense that nothing in college is truly required ever. But uh, it was something that we were supposed to do. So I went and watched it and I was so excited by the end of the movie. And you know what? I knew what was going to happen. I was already familiar with the story. So even though, so it had already been spoiled for me to some degree. And I was so excited about it. I, I, took my wife and I, whichever kids I could get to watch it with me. And I played it on the, in the theater downstairs. And my wife was like, so tense <laughs> all during the movie. It's just an excellent dramatic story yeah, that happens suspenseful. to actually be true. Sorry, go ahead, Tracy. Oh yeah. I was just saying it was very suspenseful. Yes, it is. Um, and we're going to spoil it all. So go watch the movie first. And then come back to this episode and we're going to do kind of an analysis of, of uh, the movie. And we've, I've already kind of spoiled parts of it. Like if you watched our um, uh, reinforcement learning episode, we talked quite a bit about AlphaGo the movie in there. And I probably should have warned people then that there were spoilers in it. Anyhow, let me, let's, let's just start at the, the beginning here with uh, the story. So David Silver is a famous guy in um, machine learning, in reinforcement learning. And he has a series of uh, lectures that are available on YouTube, which are excellent, where he teaches reinforcement learning. So if, if you watched our reinforcement learning episode and it, it uh, made you curious, you can learn about the full theory of reinforcement learning uh, at a college level uh, from David Silver, probably one of the world experts in reinforcement learning. He's a, a very good teacher. I, I say the only real downside to the lectures is that I had a hard time understanding him sometimes. He has an accent and the sound isn't the greatest, but uh, he's someone who really knows this material well. He is in charge of AlphaGo. So the setup for this is, is that Go is, um, it's sometimes called Chinese chess, which is a total misinterpretation, but it's it's kind of their strategy game that they like, similar to how, um, you know, we in America might enjoy chess, but the games are nothing similar at all. It's a much harder game to write a program for to play. And the reason why is because the way they usually do um, game playing algorithms is with the minimax algorithm, which basically just tries making a move, tries making a move for its opponent, tries making its own move. It just tries as many moves as it can out into advance as far as it can. Quickly, that becomes an exponential nightmare. You know, if you can get seven moves out, you're doing great. With Go, the branching factor, the number of possible moves is so large, you just can't really use the minimax algorithm effectively. And then to make matters worse, it's not 
in chess, you can kind of come up with really simple algorithms that can tell you, oh, you now you're seven moves out. If you do this move, seven moves from now, you'll be in a better position. And it can determine, quote, better position based on some simple algorithm that says, well, you know, you've, you haven't lost your queen and you've got this many points for the pieces on your board. And they can come up with very simple algorithms that tell you if the board position seven moves out is good or not. There's nothing equivalent for that for Go. Um, Go masters use their intuition to be able to tell if their board position from this move is good or not. And so how do you get a computer to do intuition? So this is kind of the setup that there are Go playing algorithms when David Silver steps onto the scene, and they're really bad. They can only play at an amateur level. Um, professionals think it's a joke. They're, they're, it's kind of a common joke amongst professional Go players about how bad uh, Go playing computer programs are. Okay, so this is kind of the background. They don't, I don't know if they fully explain that in the movie or not, but that is, that is the background for which David Silver then decides, I'm going to make this Go playing algorithm that can actually compete at a professional level and gets a team together as, you know, for at his university or whatever, whoever is funding it. And that is what AlphaGo is. They're, they're setting out to try to beat professional level players. If possible, they want to beat the world champion who's least at all. They don't know if, what it's going to take to do it. They're just going to try to use the theory of reinforcement learning. They feel like that and deep reinforcement learning, I'll explain what that is in just a second, uh, are technologies that in principle might be possible to build a professional level Go playing algorithm out of. But no one's in the world ever done it before. They don't know if it can really be done or not. And then here's a quote from David Silver. And we've often talked about the fact that so much of what goes into machine learning is human knowledge. You know, machine learning does create knowledge, but it's not very much. It's mostly knowledge coming from humans. And David Silver admits this. This is a quote from the movie. He says, everything that AlphaGo does, it does because a human has either created the data that it learns from, created the learning algorithm that learns from the data, created the search algorithm. All of these things have come from humans. So really, this is a human endeavor. And this is actually an important point because everybody is kind of cheering on the human and not the computer because we relate to Lisa Dahl being, being human, but he's kind of making the point, both sides are in a sense human, right? That you've got this team of programmers that are all human and they want to be able to make an algorithm that has never existed before, that can do something that's never been done before. This is a very human thing for them as well, right? That they, they want to be successful. So for this movie, this made this somewhat exciting for me. You can't help but cheer for Lisa Dahl, the human player. You're not really against Team AlphaGo because they're a bunch of humans that you really kind of are rooting for too. <laughs> um, at least that was for me. What did you guys think? I, um, you know, everybody is a, a very sympathetic character. Um, yeah. I, you end up rooting for for everybody, and it's it's hard when people are getting beat that <laughs> that you know that they've dedicated their entire life to being masters and now they're getting beat by a by a computer that they don't even understand so it, it's it, I, I found everybody to be a sympathetic character yeah with this in mind as the background team alphago contacts uh i, I don't I, I can't even pronounce his name but contacts a, a go player who's um, a professional level, but not a strong professional level player. He's kind of somewhere in the middle somewhere. They they contact him 
and they say, we're working on a program to play Go. We need someone who's good at Go to help us. Uh, we'd like to pay you to come and come in and uh, be part of our team. And, and he's thinking, okay, this is dumb. Go, you know, computers can't play Go. I get, you know what, I'll show up. I'll see what they're into. I don't know what they need from me. You know, and, and he's not really sold at all on what's going on when he first shows up. What happens when he plays his first game against him? Do you guys remember? I just watched it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think he loses. He does. He loses his first game. And he's so embarrassed that he all, he walks out. <laughs> he walks out and the team is the out team alpha goes thinking he might not come back. <laughs> and he walks, wanders off and he's thinking to himself and he's just humiliated because to lose to a computer in go is like the most humiliating thing that could ever happen to you as a go player, because it's so well known that, that go programs just don't play well. And he's walking along being all humiliated. And it, it finally strikes him. Oh my gosh, they've got something. It just beat me. <laughs> and he runs back and he goes, I've got to be a part of this. <laughs> and it's so once now he can put his own, his own ego aside to realize what a phenomenal yeah. breakthrough it is. Yes. <laughs> he's like, they've made a go playing program. <laughs> so he runs back and he wants to participate. And he gets super excited. And then he's one of the main narrators of the documentary through the rest of the movie. And he's, he's interesting because he's on Team AlphaGo and you can tell he is. He really wants to see AlphaGo win from this point forward. But he's coming at it from the standpoint of the person that helped train AlphaGo, you know, that um, you know, this is his baby to some degree. He's not at Lisa Dahl's level and he knows he's not, right? So AlphaGo is way going to exceed his skill level and he knows this. But he kind of just understands what it's like to play AlphaGo and to be shocked when you suddenly realize this is no normal Go playing program, right? And so you, you get a lot of kind of the sense of what it's like to be a Go player through his eyes throughout the movie. So they train up and they, they do a challenge to Lisa Dahl, who's the world champion. Lisa Dahl accepts and they're going to do five games. Lisa Dahl initially... He takes the stance, oh, I'm going to beat it all five games. And he seems pretty confident because, of course, he knows AlphaGo programs, they're bad. But at least, I don't know about you guys, but it seemed to me like maybe he was just a little bit nervous. Like you can see him kind of asking questions. Oh, I saw it playing your Go consultant. And, and has it gotten better since then? <laughs> they're like, well, we can't tell you how much better it is. But you, you can kind of tell that he knows he's jumping into the unknown here a little bit. And I thought that was interesting too. A very, very human sort of thing. He, he starts off very confident, but he's not quite sure what he's dealing with, right? And because he's never played this, this program before. He's seen games with this other Go player that, who's not on his level. He thinks he can beat it based on seeing those games that it's played. But uh, of course, they're improving the algorithm. Like, right up until the day of the game. So what he's actually going to be playing is not the same algorithm that he's actually seeing. It's going to be something better by the time he gets there. So I thought that was interesting too. There's kind of this tension about how well can the algorithm play. And 
you get a good feel from the from Team AlphaGo how nervous they are that they're taking their little program that's only played a mid-level, you know, Go player up to this point, and it's suddenly going to be playing the world champion. And it might embarrass them, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think yeah. you can feel like this definite, like they, they're afraid that he's, that their program's going to get beat, you know, three moves in, four moves in. Yeah. Yeah, and they're also, they're also worried um, about the game hallucinating. So they, that's what they call it. They're worried that the game will, at times, it will think it's winning when it's not. It, it's like hallucinating a victory that's not there. The game has a history of doing that, where, um, you know, some percentage of the time, it suddenly, its algorithm says, oh, you have, you know, a 90% chance of winning with this move. And it's, it, it's just a bad move, right? It's, it's completely off with its calculations. And when that happens, the game doesn't play like a human and um, still put up a decent fight. It just starts to do stupid things, embarrassingly stupid things. So their biggest fear is that it will hallucinate in the middle of the game and it will start to do really embarrassing moves. And when it loses, it won't lose you know, gracefully or put up a good fight. It'll basically just start doing incredibly stupid things and the team will be embarrassed. So there's this real threat that the team might get embarrassed by Lee Sadal, who's the world champion Go player. So you kind of feel for them too. Um, and Tracy, I know you, you were wanted to ask about hallucination. I, I tried to explain it there. Do you have any other questions about what it means to hallucinate? Well, no, I was just uh, confused by the term because I think most people think that you literally imagining something that's not there. And in this case, I, I, for a computer, I guess I'm just thinking that is hallucinate the right word? It's kind of weird because I think the computer's, I don't know, if, is it imagining versus it's trying to project or predict versus just imagining something that's not there? Yeah. You know, that's the word that I believe the team just used, or maybe they used the word deluded. I think maybe they used both. But um, if you really think about it, this is just humans making up a word for something, right? I mean, it's, they call it deluded or hallucinate, but it's not because it's somewhat analogous to when a human is deluded or hallucinates, but it's not really the same thing. It's just an analogy to it. So I was, I will admit I was a little confused on how that would impact the program's ability. Like what did they think that the program would do once it started hallucinating that would be different from what they had been training it to do? So if it gets into one of these states, so to understand why this would happen, I, I, I think back to our reinforcement learning episode, okay? Now, even if you only just got the gist of the theory of reinforcement learning, remember that there was a world space, right? There's this solution space where you have to have every, have to have a table, a Q table with every single possible combination that's possible in this world space. So what's the world space for, for AlphaGo? It's, um, it's every possible configuration of the board. Okay. So imagine try to make an array and the array, the first element in the array represents a board with no pieces on it. And then the second element in the array represents a board with only white having one piece, you know, in the bottom right corner or something like that. Okay. And then you'd have to just have one something in that array 
for every single possible board position that could possibly exist according to the rules. So an array that large would be too large for any computer. There's no computer on the earth that could store that much memory. It's, it's just too large, right? And this is one of the problems with the theory of reinforcement learning is that you even for really small, uh, the world spaces that it can actually handle, it can only handle small ones because this Q table grows out of control really fast, right? It's exponential growth. So, and then even if you could fit it all into memory, you've still got a second problem, okay? The way it works, think about how when the little robot went up into the corner, slowly the numbers move out from the goal and the reward moves forward and it calculates a value for each space until it finds the spaces that are next to the goal. And then those get a higher value state. Okay, remember how that works in, from the uh, episode on reinforcement learning? Yes, yes. Okay, so if you have that many spaces, how many games would you have to play for it to actually learn that this board, this specific board configuration is this close to the goal? You would have to play probably trillions to the trillions games, right? I mean, like it would be an enormous amount of games you would have to play. And this is the second problem with reinforcement learning is that even, even if you can fit, and I actually tried this, I did a, a lunar lander reinforcement learning algorithm. And I tried to just make a state space that just used a regular queue table. And it, that, it crashed that lander like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> I mean, it was, the problem was, <laughs> is, is that it, I just couldn't get it to train enough to actually fill up the table so that most of the table was always zero and it just didn't know what to do. Okay. So um, let's use this as kind of the starting point. Imagine that uh, they actually implemented this with the queue table, which they didn't. I'll explain what they did instead. Um, but it, it's a similar problem. Imagine that you got the game into a state that it has never seen before. So it, in its queue table, it gives it a value of zero. It's going to basically make a random move at that point. Okay. So humans never make random moves. If it starts making random moves, it's going to look stupid. It's going to look like it's a little child playing the world champion, right? So it's going to be embarrassing for um, the programmers. Does, does this kind of make sense? Yes. It does. Okay. Yes. So since you can't possibly fit the world, spa world space for this um, for Go into a computer, and if you did, it wouldn't work anyhow because you'd never be able to play enough games, what do they do instead? What they do is they they... Keep in mind that um, neural networks, they do a very good job of mimicking any function. So think of it like this, like we somehow recognize faces. We go on Facebook, we see a picture, we recognize a person's face. So we know there's a function that humans use to recognize faces. We just don't know what it is. And I talked about this in the uh, machine learning episodes where Visual recognition is something we don't really understand, and so we didn't know how to program it, and so it turned out to be easier just to let machine learning learn how to do it. Well, the way they do that is with neural nets. Neural nets will come up with some sort of function that works, at least well enough, right? And it doesn't necessarily do it the way a human does, and that's, that's why they have these things called uh, adversarial examples, where we see, have a picture of a dog, and it recognizes a dog, and then you go change a couple pixels, and it still looks exactly like a dog, and a human can't tell the difference. And now the computer thinks it's a giraffe, 
right? I mean, like, there's those funny things you can do because of the way it comes up with its functions, okay? But that's what neural nets do. Neural nets will take any function and the whole world is made up of functions. That's part of the theory of computational theory, that everything can be simulated as a function. So we're basically just asking the neural net through this, its training algorithm, through using Grady to send as its heuristic. We're asking it to try variants of weights and select the best ones, which is what we talked about when we talked about knowledge creation and machine learning, until it finds some sort of local minima that works pretty well. You can do that for a Q table. You can say, okay, we can't fit the true Q table and, and solution space in there. So we're going to use a neural net that takes inputs like a Q table would and gives outputs like a Q table would, but it's just the neural net doing it instead, which is going to be much smaller. And neural nets are good at generalization. So the neural net will figure out on its own that this board position is somewhat analogous to that board position, and it will end up with some sort of knowledge about what to do for every single board position, even though you never actually reached some of the board positions that it has to play, okay? But if the neural net hasn't been trained well, it will start to act a lot like a Q-table that's you reached a state where it just doesn't know what to do. If, if, it, if you hit some combination and it thinks it's analogous to something that it isn't, or it just has never really seen anything like that before, it'll just start to do random moves, basically. It's the same problem, but on a much smaller scale, okay? And I think part of the reason why AlphaGo had this particular problem is that the original AlphaGo used human training examples. It would train off of uh, human games. The later AlphaGo didn't. It just played itself. So it didn't have to use any input of human games at all for its training. That version where it just played itself, it would just create its own data by playing games with itself and play it billions and billions of times. That version didn't seem to have anywhere near the level of the hallucination problems that the earlier problem did when it was still trying to use these human games, which means that, I mean, how many human games have been played in the history of the world, right? I mean, AlphaGo, the final version that doesn't use human, human games, it plays more games than it probably been played in the history of the world by humans, okay? When you're trying to train off of human knowledge, you're leaving all sorts of gaps in its knowledge as to what to do, okay? But it kind of a shortcut initially that you can show it what a good game looks like, and it can use that for generating board positions, but uh, it's going to be a weakness also. So that's really kind of what happened there from a technical standpoint, and they hadn't yet figured out how to get it to stop doing that. And so there was always this threat that the game might just embarrass them. Does that answer your question, Cameo? It does. It, it, it does. That was a great explanation. Okay. So we get into the game. And do you guys remember what happened? Does one of you want to kind of summarize what happens in the, uh, the first game there? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> it was just very tense. Um, you know, we... There's no obvious face to an opponent, which is terrifying. And it started out really, to me, it seemed hesitant. And it was anxiety-ridden because the um, AlphaGo took so long to make its first move. There was a lot of doubt and, like, is this really going to work? How is this yeah. going to play? So what you just mentioned is really interesting. When humans play, there's only certain opening moves you can make. So humans make an immediate open move, right? They don't stop and think about it for 10 minutes. Right, yeah. So AlphaGo stopped and thought about it for 10 minutes, about which move it wanted to make. <laughs> and and it's, it 
for an opening move, that seems like, wow, it's, is it just confused? But it turns out it stopped and thought about each move for 10 minutes, pretty much the whole way through, <laughs> you know, it just always just stopped and thought for some period of time. And, and it, it, it was very unhuman like in that regard. So it kind of threw the human commentators and Lisa Dahl off because they weren't quite sure what to make of that. Well, and I think everybody is kind of thinking that the machine's not able to make the next move, right? Like they're, they're not sure if, because why would a machine need to think? Right. You know, and, and, and even that, uh, that phraseology, like what, what is the machine actually doing during these thinking periods? Is it running multiple variations of the move? Yeah, it's, it's running. It's probably the way AlphaGo is programmed. It does use a mini max algorithm. So it actually runs through every possible move, several moves out. It, It just does that regardless of where it is. It doesn't care if it's the first move or, you know, the 10th move or the hundredth move. It, it always would just try to run multiple different moves and try to think outward what, what its best move is. Yeah, but um, they, they, they do it. All of the humans are like, why is it taking it so long? It, it kind of makes sense, though. A human player would have a heuristic in mind. They would think, well, there's only certain good opening moves. I'm just going to pick one of them. Whereas the computer doesn't have a library of opening moves. They probably could have given it a library of open moves to make it more human-like, but they didn't. Instead, the computer had to go run a simulation of a little game in its head to figure out what a good opening move would be. Does that make sense? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it does. So the first big surprise was what they call move 37. Oh, the other thing, to to Tracy's point, AlphaGo is played by one of the programmers. So the programmer has a computer screen up. He enters the move that Lisa Dahl makes. And then he waits for AlphaGo to come back. And then when AlphaGo makes the move, he then does that move on the board, according to what AlphaGo told him to do. And Lisa Dahl keeps trying to read the programmer's face. Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. <laughs> it's disturbing. <laughs> Is He's trying to figure out what the programmer's thinking. And then he suddenly realizes the programmer doesn't know what's going on. Because I'm not playing the programmer, I'm playing the computer. Well, and it's especially funny because the programmer doesn't actually know how to play Go at all. He doesn't, yeah. He's not that a doesn't player. understand the game at all. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a real player would read the tension in their in their opponent's eyes and would determine what's this person thinking and what they're doing. And Lisa Dahl suddenly finds that that part of his skill set is useless because the person he's playing against sitting across from him on the table, it, it doesn't know anything. It totally can't give anything away. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting thing there. So uh, move 37 happened while Lisa Dahl was on a break. So Lisa Dahl went up and got, went to go out and take a break. And the programmer, who I believe they said his name is Aja. So here's what the Go consultant said. He says, so Aja who's the, the human playing the AlphaGo, sees AlphaGo, plays move 37, and Aja puts the stone on the board. When I see this move, for me, it's a big shock. Normally humans, we never play this one because it's bad. It's just bad. And here's what the commentator said about move 37. Oh, it's, uh, it's totally an unthinkable move. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very surprising move. <laughs> and then like one of the programmers said, I thought it was a mistake. And he laughed. So 
move 37 gets made and the initial impression of these you know, knowledgeable commentators and, and the Go consultant, who's a knowledgeable mid-level Go player himself, is, uh-oh, maybe that's a mistake. Lisa Dahl comes in and the Go consultant's waiting for Lisa Dahl. He wants to see what Lisa Dahl's going to think of that move because it was made while he was out on break. And Lisa Dahl comes in and looks at the board. And here's what Lisa Dahl said about it. He said, I thought AlphaGo was based on probability calculation and that it was merely a machine. But when I saw this move, I changed my mind. Surely AlphaGo is creative. This move was really creative and beautiful. So Lisa Dahl sees that this move's not a mistake, that AlphaGo has made a move that humans wouldn't normally make. Human players do not make a move like this. They're built up heuristics and intuitions and such. You don't make a move like this. But when, when Lisa Dahl saw the move, while everybody else was thinking a mistake, he suddenly realized, whoa, that was a smart move. Um, even though it was uh, one that was a very inhuman sort of move. It's interesting to hear the commentators at this point. Let me see. They got uh, David Silver. He says, the professional commentators almost unanimously said that not a single human player would have chosen move 37. So I actually had to poke around in AlphaGo. So AlphaGo has, you can like ask it um, questions. Like it, it's got um, analysis of its own moves and things like that. So you can like pull up the data and look at it. So, so I had to poke around in AlphaGo to see what AlphaGo thought. And AlphaGo actually agreed with the assessment. AlphaGo said that there was a one in 10,000 probability that move 37 would have been played by a human player. So it knew this was an extremely unlikely move. It went beyond its human guide and it came up with something new and creative and different is mm. what David Silver said. And then one of the narrators in the show, he says, I'm very much watching the game through the commentators. That's the way it works. So when they're confused, I'm certainly confused. At the same time, I'm latching onto the fact that they're confused, right? This is, this, that is an interesting moment when everyone is confused. Who is not confused, right? Besides the machine. So AlphaGo with move 37, it made a creative move that was outside of human knowledge. This is one of the things that was so interesting about it. And yet the world master, even if most of the commentators couldn't tell, immediately goes, wow, that's an amazingly beautiful move. And starts to realize, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not playing a normal computer uh, Go playing program here. So that was one of the most exciting moments. That was early on uh, in the game where uh, it, it makes this move, kind of makes people start to realize this is no regular Go program. And Lee Sadal starts to get kind of worried. Uh-oh, <laughs> what's, what's going on here? You know, this, this is something that can think differently than a human. It's not like a human master, but it's a master all its own. He goes on to lose the first game. It, of course, it's humiliating that he lost to this, to this game. To, to this computer, but he's, he's got a great attitude about it. And he, he's like, I'm going to come back tomorrow and I'm going to win the next game. And, and he's kind of even excited maybe that he's found an opponent that's worthy of playing, right? <laughs> it also leads to when AlphaGo has a victory, the media attention starts to get a lot more serious because now it's actually beat the uh, um, World Go Champion once. So that makes it way more interesting of an event. So the media scrutiny and attention starts to really heat up at this point in uh, the story. So now I don't know, I can't remember the exact order of games uh, that, that takes place. Um, I believe it was 
AlphaGo, no, I, I do remember. AlphaGo goes on to beat Lisa Dahl three times in a row. And at this point, Lisa Dahl's actually lost, right? He's, he's still got two more games to play, but AlphaGo is going to be the overall victor at this point because it's already won three out of five games. Right. Lisa Dahl has got a great attitude about this, though. He's, he's, his tone has changed, though. He's gone from, you know, I'm going to beat it every game to I'm going to beat it at least once. And this is what all the humans are cheering for now. Is there's so much tension over can Lisa Dahl beat AlphaGo at least once? The excitement is around that now, is that AlphaGo is no longer thought of as, oh, this little Go program. It's now the world champion, effectively, right? And, and it's like, can we get a human to beat this, this unstoppable machine, Go playing machine? And a lot of the tension in the movie kind of shifts towards that at this point, where Lisa Dahl is trying so hard to um, beat AlphaGo at least once. And this is where one of the, so move 37 is one of the big spoilers. This next one, the God move, uh, is probably the biggest spoiler. So that's why hopefully you've watched the movie first. Lisa Dahl comes back and beats AlphaGo on the fourth game. Everybody's celebrating and they're so excited. And it's like, yes, we humans, we're not out of the race. You know, (laughs) there's a great deal of tension around that. But what's really interesting is how Lisa Dahl beat AlphaGo um, in game four. They they called the move that he used where he beat AlphaGo, they call it the God move. Uh, I think it's also called move 78 or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was called. Lisa Dahl, as he's playing AlphaGo, he starts to realize that it's teaching him ways to play Go that he had never thought of before because he's only ever played humans before. And that he's starting to think differently about the game of Go because AlphaGo treats the game of Go differently than a human would. And and in game five, we can explain better what I mean by that because it becomes super apparent how AlphaGo plays differently than a human during game five. But Lisa Dahl's already starting to pick up on it. And it's starting to create... He's starting to think of new sorts of strategies that he's never thought of before um, because of him playing against AlphaGo. And this is what, so Move 37 in particular taught him something about the game he didn't know. And it caused him to then come up with the God move so that he was able to beat AlphaGo. This is what I think is interesting is how um, AlphaGo actually created a whole new play style that Lisa Dahl then started to pick up on and started to use against it. And I think that's what part of what makes game four so exciting is when he kind of figures out, ah, I get now how I can beat the machine. So here is what, um, here's the quote. It says, the lessons that AlphaGo is teaching us are going to influence how Go is played for the next thousand years. At the very end, the Go consultant, he says, where we look back and say, yeah, that was just like move 37. Something beautiful occurred there. At least in a broad sense, move 37 begat move 78 began a new attitude in Lisa Dahl, a new way of seeing the game. He improved through this machine. His humanness was expanded by playing this inanimate creation. Um, and, and that's actually true. From what I understand, world champion Go players have whole new play styles because of the advent of AlphaGo, that it, it introduced new play styles into the game that uh, nobody had ever thought of before. And it changed the way humans play Go also. So then probably, so after Lisa Dahl beats AlphaGo in game four, and everybody's really excited about this victory for the humans. Honestly, Lisa Dahl m- might as well have won the entire tournament. The, the level of excitement of him beating AlphaGo once 
was just so through the roof. <laughs> Everyone is so excited to see a human stomp the machine for a change. Um, the fact that he had actually already lost three games did, almost didn't matter because at this point, everyone knew AlphaGo was nearly unstoppable. And yeah, that's kind of that, weird. Like the underdog is. suddenly won and he was no underdog, really. Yes. <laughs> He's the world champion that we're talking about, right? They go into game five and Lisa Dahl is um, feeling somewhat confident that maybe he can beat AlphaGo again and get at least two victories against it. And this this leads to probably the most interesting aspect of the documentary. Even, even though the God move is super interesting and move 37 is super interesting, this last part is almost, it's almost like a comedy. It's funny. Um, so what happens is that early on in game five, um, oh, by the way, that was one of the things that happened is when Lisa Dahl made the God move, it made AlphaGo become a little confused. Just like we were talking about with the hallucination where it deludes itself. I don't think it necessarily played bad, but um, it, it could not quite figure out what to do from that point forward. And it was kind of obvious that it couldn't. He had, he had figured out a super creative move that, that it hadn't foreseen, strangely as that may sound, that allowed him to go into a board position where it just couldn't figure out how to recover. It continued to play from that point forward but it was just, it was kind of obvious it was over. Just, just like when it made move 37, it became kind of obvious. Oh, once they started to realize what it had done, they started to realize, oh, the game's over. Alpha, Alpha Go with that move, it had won the game. It's just a matter of time now. And apparently that happens in Go. So in game five, in the final game, uh, it make, Alpha Go makes a move. And similar to move 37, everybody thinks it's a mistake. Only this one was a lot weirder. This one was move 37. At least Lisa Dahl could see it was a beautiful move, right? The world champion. In this case, everybody thought it was a mistake. So here's, here's what the commentators are saying uh, in the documentary. They say, is it fair to say that AlphaGo made a mistake? We might have another victory today for Lisa Dahl. We're, you weren't crazy about the timing on this move. And the other guy gets, says, yeah, I'm sort of thinking that maybe AlphaGo hasn't recovered from game four yet. Yeah, and they kind of chuckle. And then one of them says, I think it could be a kind of misreading. It says, there's no reason for Wikey playing that move. These are like the, the commentators who are watching the game. You've got, you've got these people who are commenting on the game. And in the background, the programmers are, have seen this move. And one of the programmers says, still diluted? Another one says, we don't know. Another one says, that is looking good for Lisa Dahl? And they're like, yeah, it looks like Lisa Dahl is going to win this game. And the programmer says, are we seeing another short circuit? Um, so they check what AlphaGo thinks and one of the programmers reports, AlphaGo is saying it's 91% certain now it's going to win. And the other programmer says, yeah, because it's incorrect again. So the, um, and the consultant said, it's a bad move. Oh, maybe like AlphaGo- They, all, they weakness... all think that the machine's just messing it up. That's right. It says, oh, maybe AlphaGo's weakness comes back. It's a bad move, says the AlphaGo consultant that trained it. It continues after this move, after it makes this bad move, and everybody thinks, that's it, Lisa Dahl's won the game. It continues to make bad moves throughout the rest of the game. So it really looks like it's just hallucinating and it's just doing these crazy moves, right? As the game moves on, the commentators suddenly change and they go, wait, I think AlphaGo's winning. And it turns out that all these crazy moves that it was making were actually really intelligent moves. 
that no human could recognize as a good move. The reason why, and one of the things that uh, the programmer says is the whole game, we thought that AlphaGo was wrong about the board position. So it analyzes its board position. They thought it was hallucinating. It's, oh, it thinks it's got a 91% chance of winning, but it's, it's hallucinating. It says, we were super worried that, oh, it's going to play garbage. It's going to, to be like lose in a very embarrassing way. And this continued the whole game. As it turns out, none of us know Go well enough to accurately judge what AlphaGo is doing. And the narrator says, we all, we all say some of AlphaGo's moves are so weird and strange and maybe mistakes. But after a game is finished, we have to doubt ourselves, our judgment. What AlphaGo was doing is it, it's, its true play style came out during game five. And the easiest way to explain it is that Throughout the history of the world, people had been using number of points as a proxy for chance of winning. So human players consistently, and, and this makes sense, right? I mean, like this, this, there's no big mystery here, consistently tried to go for as many points as they could possibly get on the grounds that that would increase their, their margin for the win, right? And increase their chances of winning. AlphaGo realized that wasn't the way it worked, that you won by winning by one point. So it played it entirely differently. It would almost throw moves away if it had to. Once it, once it had consolidated what it was going to win with, its board position it was going to win with, it would simply defend that board position. And it wouldn't even try to take new territory after that. And it would make moves that seemed like it was just throwing stuff away. It was just waiting, biding its time so that it could now win the game. And that was why it seemed like it was making all these stupid moves, but it actually knew it had won the game. It had already figured out it had won the game and it was just waiting for Lee to come along and rest everybody else, all the humans to come along and realize, oh, it's won. And until near the end of the game, none of the humans recognized that is that it had already won the game way back with its first crazy move. If you think about it from a, just the theory of reinforcement learning standpoint, what reinforcement learning does is it tries to learn this board position is closer to the goal of winning than this, the, this other board position, right? That's what it's trying to learn, okay? That isn't the same thing as getting the most points. It just isn't. You can see how being defensive might be a better strategy in some circumstances than being offensive. But human players never realized that before. They had never understood that you only have to win by a point. So sometimes it's better to be defensive than it is to be offensive. Well, AlphaGo had figured this out. Okay, that was part of what its algorithm figures out as it tries to work out um, the probability of winning from each board position. And when it had realized this, it, that's how come it created this whole new play style where humans had just never realized, oh, we've been using points as a proxy for chances of winning when really we should be worrying about chances of winning directly because that's a better thing for us to be worrying about. This is what led AlphaGo to introduce a whole new play style was this realization that humans were making a mistake. Every thousands of years of Go players were making the same mistake and AlphaGo wasn't. And this is why it invented this new play style. This is why it seemed so inhumanly like it was making mistakes, but it was actually winning the game. This is... Uh, one of the most interesting parts of uh, the overall game is just the fact that it had discovered this whole new play style um, through the way the machine learning algorithms work. And it had come up with this idea, 
I'm just going to try to win by one point. I'm not, I'm not going to try to win by as many points as I can. Once I'm convinced I can win by one point, that's it. I'm going to just make sure I win by one point and I'm done. And that's why AlphaGo's play style seemed so random at times uh, to a human who only is looking at how to, you know, shouldn't it be taking more board position? Shouldn't it be trying to score more points? And it didn't care. That, this is, that was one of the most exciting points to the, of the story to me is when they started to realize that, that every human on the planet did not understand this aspect of Go that AlphaGo understood. Maybe I can make it just an aside here for a second. We, we talked about in one of the episodes um, the uh, pseudo-Deutsch theory of knowledge, this idea that uh, no, um, no AI algorithm, no algorithm that has ever been invented by humans has ever created knowledge before. Um, based on typically there's different ways that this is explained. It's explained as um, well, because the human actually input all the knowledge and, and you know, we know the human does input most of the knowledge. So that's not entirely false based also on this idea that, that the knowledge somehow exists in the data, which to me sounds kind of inductive, but anyhow, that this is typically how it's said is that the, the knowledge is in the data and it's just sort of reorganizing the knowledge into a useful format but that the knowledge all came from the programmer. Now, I'm not saying AlphaGo refutes that because to be honest, this is an irrefutable theory and which is the problem. The theory can't be falsified in any way, which is why it's not a good explanation. But I think that AlphaGo playing Lisa Dahl certainly stretch shows how far you have to stretch this theory to take it seriously to where not a single human understood what AlphaGo learned by playing itself or by using this uh, algorithm. Not a single human had ever actually realized, oh, you shouldn't be using points as a proxy for chances of winning. You should be paying attention to winning by at least one point. The fact that AlphaGo really and truly did come up with a brand new creative move, move 37, you know, that it created a new play style, that um, all of these things, that something so creative that the world champion was the only one who could recognize the beauty of the move right? It required a world champion to understand how beautiful the move was because it was so creative. And it was something so far outside anything any human had done. It wasn't part of the data that was fed into it from human players because human players don't make this move. You could still, of course, say, oh, well, but the knowledge actually came from the algorithm and humans inserted that. You can always say that. That's the problem with the pseudo-Deutsch theory of knowledge is that it can be used for any circumstance like this. It can apply to any circumstance. It can never, ever be falsified or refuted. But this should show just how far we're stretching to make the claim that uh, machine learning creates no knowledge. I, I would also point out that we could use the Pseudo-Deutsch theory of knowledge to claim that humans don't create knowledge. We could say, oh, all knowledge actually comes from, from uh, biological evolution, and all the knowledge that humans display actually comes from that knowledge created in their genes. And I mean, of course, this is a ridiculous theory. I mean, of course, it's a ridiculous theory. And then uh, the humans just take observations and, you know, using induction, of course, take observations and the knowledge is already in the observations. And they, they use the, these algorithms that, that are built into their head by uh, the knowledge that came from the genes. And so all the knowledge actually comes from the genes and humans generate no knowledge at all. And the, the Pseudo-Deutsch theory of knowledge could be used for, to prove this also, which is the problem 
that it can it over explains it explains every single possible outcome there's no outcome that exists that it can't explain that's not what we want in a good theory what we want in a good theory is one that can be falsified that doesn't explain every single possible outcome i do think though that alphago is one of the strongest challenges where intuitively you look at what happened go watch the movie and then really try to try to hold on to the, the pseudo deutsch theory of knowledge and i think you'll find that it's starting to crack around the edges for you, right? Is it, it just doesn't make sense that there's no knowledge creation that took place here because the knowledge that it's showing, none of the humans knew about it. It just, it didn't exist in any of the human heads. It was something, there was great knowledge that came from the humans, but it, it went beyond that. It went beyond that and generated some of its own knowledge that allowed it to be the world champion, that allowed it to be a new kind of uh, play style that no human had seen before. This is how this, this documentary ties into some of our past podcasts and kind of the importance of really understanding that machine learning does have a form of knowledge creation that's involved with it, that AI is creating knowledge in a sort of narrow uh, setting. Now, it doesn't create knowledge beyond its narrow setting. AlphaGo isn't going to suddenly learn, you know, how to make pancakes tomorrow, right? It's It's stuck to whatever its specific knowledge space is that it is trained to do. It's narrow AI. It's no different than any other narrow AI in, in that regard. But within that narrow domain, machine learning comes up with things that no human being has seen before and that no new human being knows how to do. And that's really the point that I kind of wanted to make to particularly the Deutschian community that often has embraced the pseudo-Deutsch theory of knowledge that this is something that needs a stronger look. This is something where we really need Paparians looking at it saying, okay, what's really going on with machine learning? What is it doing? You know, that it's able to come up with new things like this, totally creative new things like this um, that no human knew prior to this point. All right, off my soapbox on that one. And so I'm, I'm curious because you said that this is a simplistic AI. What, you know, I think it's a pretty big moment to see this machine have um, an intuitive leap where it does something that nobody had taught it um, and it figures out something we're not capable of figuring out or, or it couldn't imagine um, our intuition didn't, hadn't come up with. Yes. What does it mean? And, or maybe it doesn't mean anything, but, what, you know, looking at general artificial intelligence. Um, do we see this as, as a leap forward on our understanding of, of machine learning or our understanding of our ability to create an artificial general intelligence? All right, very good question. There are, in some ways, and we'll do a podcast on this at some point, in some ways what you're asking is, what is it that we're missing about general intelligence? And we don't know what we're missing. Right. I mean, like it's a mystery what it is that we just we're, we're not even asking the right questions at this point. When we try to come up with an intelligent machine to go play AlphaGo, we do it in a certain way. We, we figure out, OK, we're going to have this state space and we're going to have it, you know, we're going to use reinforcement learning. And there's not even really an attempt to make it generalize, to do anything. Some people will tell you reinforcement learning is a general learning algorithm. That's only true if you don't take into consideration that a human has to go and 
put the state space, the world space, you, you have to go teach it what the world space is for each problem that you want it to solve. It never learns to solve a different problem except for the one it's been programmed to solve. The rest of the algorithm generalizes, right? Is, is Think of it like a module you have to plug in. The, the, the reinforcement learning algorithm will learn any world space it, it's given, but you have to first give it to it. You have to first say, here's what, how to represent uh, you know, every single board position for AlphaGo. Here is how you understand what a reward is. I mean, it has to have some sort of input from the real world that's a reward that has to be explained to it. It has to be programmed, not explained, but programmed. And then from that point forward, it will then play billions of games with itself, more games than any humans ever played. And it will, it will figure out which board positions are the better ones. Once it knows which board positions are the better ones, then you think about it. All it has to do is it has to try each move and say, is this move going to give me a better board position than this move or this move or this move? The knowledge gets caught up in its board evaluation algorithm. That's really where its, its true knowledge exists. Okay, It generates this board evaluation algorithm. It's the board evaluation algorithm that is the function that no human has ever seen before, that it has come up with. And its board evaluation algorithm was so good that looking ahead only one move, it could play at professional levels. If you let it look ahead more than one move, then it was even better. And presumably to play Lisa Dahl, you're not looking ahead one move, right? You're looking ahead as many moves as you can. And then think about the fact that looking ahead, trying out moves, that itself is a form of knowledge creation because you're trying out each of the moves, you're figuring out which move is the best one. And then you're using the board evaluation algorithm to tell you as a proxy for that's the best move. So the combination of those two algorithms generate knowledge. Now, here's the interesting thing. Think about like um, IBM playing Kasparov when Big Blue beat Kasparov. Big Blue did not create a new play style. Big Blue did not create uh, brand new sorts of moves that no one had ever seen before. People said, wow, that was a creative move. Now, there's a good reason why it didn't. It's because all the knowledge was caught up in trying to look ahead as many moves as it could, which is just too limited, okay, to create a whole new creative play style. AlphaGo learned its creative play style through its board evaluation algorithm. In Big Blue, uh, Deep Blue, I mean, sorry, uh, the board evaluation algorithm was done by a human. It was just human knowledge inserted into the computer program. With AlphaGo, that board evaluation algorithm was created by the learning algorithm, the reinforcement learning algorithm combined with the deep learning algorithm. And so the net result was that it had come up with a new way to think about the game and a new way to understand the game and new creative sorts of moves. Okay. That's because the minimax algorithm is just too weak. Yes, it creates knowledge, but the knowledge it creates is very local. It just simply says, given this board position, what's my next best move looking out seven moves or however moves it can, it can figure out. I mean, it's more complicated than that. It tries to call out move, uh, moves that aren't good, and it tries to look ahead 13 moves maybe or 20 moves on the few most interesting possibilities or something like that, okay? With AlphaGo, it actually plays billions of games, and then it figures out, based on those games, which board positions are the most likely to lead to a win, okay? That's the way reinforcement learning works. That was why AlphaGo came up with new creative play styles and beautiful new moves and things like that, whereas Deep Blue never did. It just simply played chess well. That is the difference between AI, regular AI, good old-fashioned AI, and machine learning. 
where machine learning actually comes up with creative new algorithms, functions, I should say, functions and algorithms could be the same thing. It comes up with creative new functions that no human has ever seen before. Whereas with AI, it's just simply trying to find the best move out of the possible moves at this position. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, what does, but what does it mean for the future of... Of AGI. Mm-hmm. So I think every approach to AI that we're currently doing is the wrong approach for AGI. They're, they're all interesting in their own right. Okay. I mean, the fact that we can make up these automated algorithms that can generate new, new sorts of creativity, right? New sorts of creative moves, things like that within narrow domains. That's not a bad thing. Like when we actually create AGIs, they're going to be a lot like us. They're going to be people. We aren't going to want to enslave them. I mean, that would be bad <laughs> to enslave a person to then be a chess player only or something like that, right? If you want to make a really good chess player, you, what you really want is you want a narrow AI to do it. And that's true of, you know, running manufacturing plants. I mean, most of what we're going to want to do through automation is going to be narrow AI forever. We're never going to use AGI to automate things. That wouldn't make sense because it's going to be a creative individual. So it, both fields need to be researched for different purposes. Both fields are types of knowledge creation. So there is an overlap between them. They're both, they're both different subsets of a single thing, which is knowledge creation. But they're very different sorts of knowledge creation. Now, why are they different? That's what we're trying to figure out, right? One of the things that they, that they talk about is there's a, a gentleman, um, he uh, researches what is, what is called the uh, problem of open-endedness. Let me get his name here. Oh, yes, Kenneth O. Stanley. And you can go look him up on YouTube, and he'll talk about the problem of open-endedness. Now, if you think about knowledge creation, everything that humans have created that creates knowledge, so basically AI algorithms and machine learning algorithms, they're all narrow knowledge creation. They create knowledge in some little tiny domain that we understand well enough to to explain, and then it, it goes and it tries variants, and it discovers things by doing that. That's different, though, than the other two kinds of knowledge creation that David Deutsch mostly talks about, which is... Um, neo-Darwinian evolution and human knowledge creation. Now, both of those are in some sense open-ended. Think about like, um, you know, Darwinian evolution and how it creates all sorts of different species, right? It's kind of, there's not, it's not limited. It's not going to try to create the best mouse and that's it, right? It, It will discover all sorts of new species and new creative ways to live in niches that weren't inhabited before. And that's what neo-Darwinian evolution does. It's, it's got this open-endedness to it. And we don't know how to program that. Never mind AGI yet. That's a related but different problem. We can't even program Darwinian evolution as an algorithm. Now, this is, uh, this is what um, uh, Leslie Valiant, I think I mentioned him in past episodes, this is one of his areas of research. He's a a very famous guy in artificial intelligence and machine learning, and he's written a number of books. And he points out that we think we understand Darwinian evolution, and we don't. We don't really know what the algorithm is that creates the sort of effects that you see in Darwinian evolution. We try to. We we have something called genetic programming, which uh, is based on uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. It it does uh, crossover. It does mutation. 
uh, it does mating, it, it creates these population pools of replicators, it does everything that we think we understand about Darwinian evolution. And the end result is narrow AI, just like every other type of AI we've built. It's Even though it's got, in theory, because it uses a programming language, in theory, it's got an open-ended problem search space. It never uses it. it. It always just explores a little tiny part of that space that's super narrow, and it produces results nearly identical to uh, you know, any other form of narrow AI. It's, it's just not a super creative algorithm. And it's certainly not open-ended. In fact, it, it converges. It can, it's the way they set it up. Usually they're trying to have it solve a single problem. So it kind of makes sense that it converges. It's part of it's just how it's designed. But then you could say, oh, well then don't have it converge to one thing. Let it just try to discover you know, random solutions. I can say that, but I don't know what that means, right? I don't even understand what I just said well enough to go make an algorithm out of it. And this is one of the big secrets, and I brought this up in our computational um, theory episodes, is that human beings understand things through algorithms, okay? And David Deutsch has put some warnings on that. He said, well, maybe we shouldn't, you know, he's, it's been his experience that it's a mistake to try to jump to algorithms immediately, that we should start by explaining things without algorithms. Well, you think about Darwinian evolution, we've gotten quite far with an with a an explanation of Darwinian evolution that um, can't be fully algorithmatized yet. But insofar as we can't algorithmatize it, it shows that we don't understand parts of it. And we, maybe we think we do. I've had people where I've talked to them and I've said, yeah, we don't fully understand Darwinian evolution. They say, oh yeah, we do. And I've had people argue with me over this. But the simple truth is we don't. <laughs> if we actually understood it uh, completely, we could make open-ended evolution of virtual species. And they've, believe me, they've tried to do this, right? They've had a certain level of success, but it always seems to kind of top off at some point and it just stops creating new things at some point. It's because we're missing something. There's something about the theory of evolution that we don't understand. And we don't even understand what it is that we don't understand. So it's hard to even ask the right question. And that's what Kenneth Stanley's trying to study is with the, the problem of open-endedness. One of the things that he's researched is um, trying to come up with creative search. So instead of trying to search for just a solution to the problem, so like, let's say you have a, a virtual robot that you're trying to teach to walk. Um, instead of just trying to directly give it rewards through re reinforcement learning for successfully walking, he basically just tells it any new state you haven't reached before you get a reward for. And it will learn to walk faster than if you directly try to teach it to walk by doing that. And so that's like his approach to try to understand the problem of open-endedness. And he's got a number, number of other really interesting um, experiments that he's trying to do using software to explore the problem of open-endedness. So that's one problem that we know we don't understand correctly. Um, Valiance pointed out that we don't even understand a tractable version of uh, Darwinian evolution, that the versions that we program would never tractably run, even if they could solve the problem of open-endedness, to, to be able to create species in a few billion years, like the world was able to do so. So we're missing something there. And there's some interesting ideas there that are worthy of some research. Uh, there was that paper that um, Thatchapole in one of our episodes talked about, where someone tried to take Leslie Valiant's uh, algorithmic evolutionary algorithm that he had proposed that didn't really work very well 
And he got it to um, solve the bitwise problem, which is something that evolutionary algorithms can't solve by introducing the idea of ecology into the mix. So maybe that's one of the things we're missing, right? Maybe we're, we're so narrowly focusing on variation and selection that we're missing the fact that there's these aspects of ecology that are also knowledge creating, that have their own variation and selection that allow it, uh, it to be able to solve problems that it can't currently solve that might lead us to an understanding of open-endedness. Well, beyond, <laughs> beyond that, there's an additional problem for AGI, which is we talk about like science as explanations, right? And this is something we've talked about with our, our epistemology. And we say, oh yeah, science is about explaining things. This is one of the things that like the instrumentalists have missed, which is why they misunderstand science. Um, that science is really about finding the best explanation. It's about trying to creatively come up with a conjecture that, uh, and then criticize that conjecture. And then the one that survives, that's the best one. That's the, the one that has the most verisimilitude. It's the, the truest one. Um, that all makes sense. But can you explain to me algorithmically what an explanation is? Because I don't think anybody can right now. I sure can't. Right. It's, Give me have, a minute. <laughs> we have a we have a um upcoming episode where I'm going to talk about causal inference. One of the things that I found exciting about causal inference is that it tried to create a mathematical computational um graph graph model of what an explanation is. It's too primitive though, right? It's I, I don't see how it's going to successfully create the kind of explanations that exist in science. It's these really primitive explanations. There's a, something called explanation-based learning, which does the same thing, and it uses logic to be able to create its explanations, uh, propositional logic or first-order logic. And that kind of makes sense. Popper, his epistemology, if you go read his book, he's, he's got several things that we call books. Most of them are just collections of things that he wrote sometime. He has one actual book called The Logic of Scientific Discovery. He his epistemology is based entirely on propositional and first order logic. And so it kind of makes sense that an explanation, he, he models explanations as logic statements. Now, David Deutsch has criticized that a little and said that that's only an approximation of an explanation. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> like if, if logic statements are only an approximation of an explanation, then what is an explanation, right? It's how would you model that inside of a computer? Well, nobody knows, right? I mean, it's, We've got a couple different paths, explanation-based learning, causal inference, where we're, we're trying to come up with something. Right now, they seem kind of primitive. Is that possibly one of the things that we're missing for AGI? Maybe, right? I don't know. Another one is, how do we make conjectures? What's the conjecture engine? Popper basically treats conjectures as a mystery. He basically says, you just come creatively come up with your best conjecture, and then from there, you criticize it. His epistemology doesn't explain how to come up with a conjecture. It explains what's to do, what to do once you have one. Well, how do you actually come up with one? Well, if I knew that, I probably would have solved the problem of AGI. That's something missing. And again, what does it even mean to creatively come up with a conjecture, right? Could, could you give me an algorithm that explains what, what those words mean, right? They're, they're actually very vague. And you may not think of them as vague, but the moment you try to put them into an algorithm, you'll start to realize just how vague they actually are. And this is why I really favor um, computational theory approach to things. There is value in creating theories that we don't know how to turn into an algorithm. And uh, that, is, that usually is the first step. You have to first create the theory at the level of linguistics. But there's these vaguenesses that exist in such a theory 
that you may not even be aware are there until you try to put them into an algorithm. And the moment you try to put them into an algorithm, you start to realize, oh, wow, there are like massive gaps in my knowledge that I didn't even realize I had until I tried to get specific and put it into an algorithm. And, and I think that all of these are what we're missing, right? We, we need to explore out a lot of these ideas better. And then we need to make an, a failed attempt to put them into algorithms and then figure out what is it that I'm missing by failing. This is something Popper brings up over and over again. He says, the way you actually solve a problem is by trying to solve it and failing. And that helps you understand the problem. And once you understand the problem really well, that's when you actually are in a position to try to actually solve it for real. You so in other words, you have to go try to fail to solve a problem to educate yourself on the problem to the point where you have any chance of solving the problem. If that makes any sense. Not only does it make sense, but I like we could almost have a, an episode just on that. That's a place I've been kind of thinking deeply about, um, you know, just in my job. You see a lot of organizations trying to become more lean or more agile, but ultimately the goal isn't to is isn't to be agile. It's to figure out how to effectively fail with within organizational constraints. You know, and and traditionally businesses don't like the concept of failure, and so part of what I think is you see kind of happening in in a lot of especially in software development is how can we organizationally get to a place where we are more comfortable with the concept of failing because it's the only actual way we can learn? So I, I'm just very interested in that in that particular concept right now. That is something that follows directly from Popper's epistemology. What you really want is you want to be able to fail and not cause problems because then you can learn faster. There are some people who consider themselves to be critical rationalists who really just don't get this fact. And, and they've got these concepts of you, you shouldn't you know, overreach because then you'll make lots of mistakes and that's failure and failure is bad. It's like, wow, you call yourself a critical rationalist? How have you so severely misunderstood the epistemology? What you really want is uh, sometimes failure is bad, right? That's why people hate it. But what you really want is you want a situation where failure is not so bad and that you can figure out how to let the failures through, not cause your whole organization to fall apart over it. You know, someone who's really good at this is Amazon. Amazon has an enormous number of failures. Sure. And, and they're very, very good at failing, learning from the failure, and then moving on and using that failure as a jumping point toward a, toward a, a future success. Yes. And if you, just, if you just think about it from just a variation in selection, which that's knowledge creation, right? Mm -hmm. Standpoint, if you go out and you try, you know, 20 different ideas and 19 of them fail, but one of them is a massive hit, it pays for the failures, <laughs> right? I mean, like you, you're going to find massive hits by trying things and failing. And then by chance, you get one that's really good. See, oddly enough, it seems like failure is actually just confirmational. That's it. We're probably coming up on time here. So uh, any other final thoughts on AlphaGo the movie? Well, hopefully nobody ruined it for themselves. But even if they hadn't watched it, I still recommend going and watching it because um, I think the impact of seeing like the way Lisa Dahl is, is responding to this and the way that everybody's constantly kind of surprised by what's going on um, is hard to 
convey here and and I just it's just a really enjoyable uh show it just is really enjoyable I agree me me quoting them just doesn't do it justice you have to kind of live it and that's what the movie lets you do you have to really see wow something something really creative is going on here right that the the algorithm is doing something creative and it's coming up with things that the humans just don't get only within its own little narrow area. We're still talking narrow AI for sure, right? This is not a conscious AGI we're talking about at all, but uh, um, there's something just interesting in and of itself about machine learning. Machine learning is an interesting topic all its own, regardless of whether it's a path to AGI or not, which it's not, not the current form anyhow. Yeah, definitely would encourage people to take a look at AlphaGo, the movie, and uh, experience this for themselves. Really be there and watch what's happening and how it unfolds and how it feels to the people that are involved. Um, all right. Well, thank you, guys. This has been uh, entertaining to talk about this movie with you. I, it's one of my favorite movies, uh, honestly. Um, I recommend it to anybody. So thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. After I finished recording this episode on AlphaGo, David Deutsch posted a video on his YouTube channel called Popper's Problem-Oriented Epistemology with David Deutsch and Eli Tier. And in the video, he actually talks with Eli about AlphaGo briefly. Eli makes the claim that AlphaGo creates knowledge, and David Deutsch admits that maybe it does. Although he still seems somewhat skeptical of that possibility. But he, he mentions, I think this is correct, that if it does create knowledge, it creates it in the same way that biological evolution does, not through explanations. I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. The type of knowledge that is created by a program like AlphaGo is not explanatory knowledge. So I was really glad to see David Deutsch finally address AlphaGo directly like this, and I was glad to see that he's at least open to the possibility that AlphaGo does create knowledge. This is a good example of what I was trying to get at within the podcast, that AlphaGo does present a problem for the pseudo-Deutsch theory of knowledge, and that was really my point. Here. Since the pseudo-Deutsch theory of knowledge is irrefutable, it could be applied to AlphaGo very easily. It could be applied to literally anything very easily. But I think emotionally it becomes far more difficult to apply it to something like AlphaGo, where it's clearly come up with this entirely new creative play style that's never been seen before in the history of the world. In any case, this is the point I was really trying to make. I really wasn't trying to go beyond that point. But I was glad to see that David Deutsch could see that there was a problem here and is starting to open his mind to the possibility that machine learning algorithms do create knowledge. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands f-o-u-r dash s-t-r-a-n-d-s there's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations if you want to make a one-time donation go to our blog which is fourstrands.org there is a donation button there that uses paypal
Thank you.